Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott and Melissa Hale. Well, I'm excited you're here today because this is uh, we are our fifth and final part of our side-by-side series that we have been in for over a month here. And uh, the conclusion is today. And today, like I said, it's Q&A Sunday, we'll be answering your questions that have been pouring in over the last month. We're so excited. Thank you so much for all your questions that have come in. Some great questions today uh, in our limited time. Melissa's going to be joining me, and we are going to try to tackle kind of a top 10 list of, of the questions that so many of you had, the ones that it kind of looked like uh, a, a, bunch of, a bunch of you was really weighing on you. And uh, we had questions pouring in all the way through last night. Uh, and to those of you, I would just say, you had a month. Um, <laughs> you had a month. But hallelujah. But we're going to get to some good. I, I pray uh, the questions and answers today will uh, bless you and answer you. And if you didn't get your question today, hey, it's not the final word on the subject. So we, it's something we'll be coming back to over and over. I want to start off really quickly before Mel comes up. I want to take a few minutes to talk about an important principle. This is a famous principle that uh, will be enormously helpful for us, not only today as we tackle this subject, these subjects. Um, it's going to help you for the rest of your life in applying Scripture to your life, and especially those passages that are kind of difficult, right? How many of you ever come across a difficult passage in the Bible? All right, if you've read your Bible, you've come across a difficult passage. I'm going to say it that way. Um, so there's a lot of difficult passages. There's, there's, it'll help us. There's passages that seem kind of puzzling, uh, that don't seem to fall neatly within Scripture, you know, within the gospel that's proclaimed uh, in, in Scriptures. Um, you know, the, the, the Bible is, is a beautiful thing, but it's not a book. How many of you know the Bible's not a book? It's 66 books. The Bible's a collection of 66 books that, are, that were put together over the course of three, four, five thousand years, right? The traditions, of, and those include different cultures uh, all over the world at the time, ancient world. And so, as a, as a consequence, you're getting the inspiration of God told through men of different cultures over the course of thousands of years. And so, it's, you're bound to get passages that sound really interesting if you proof text two verses right next to each other. Um, so, you need the Holy Spirit. And it's important to remember that the Bible is ultimately the thread that runs through the whole Bible. What is it? It's the revelation of Jesus. The Bible is the revelation of Jesus and our need for Jesus. Every scripture in the Bible either reveals Jesus or reveals our need for Jesus. And that's important to remember. Um, it's important to remember that, that there is, it is inspired. The Bible is the inspired word of God. And so rather than see some of these difficult passages and go, well, there you go, the Bible just contradicts itself there, um, it's always good to slow down a minute and say, well, wait, what is the context within which this was written? What is the author trying to say to the people he's writing it to? And, and what does that mean for me, right? Because believe it or not, the Bible was written to lots of different people they weren't always written to you, but it is written for you, right? The Bible's not always written to you, but it is written for you. And so it's very important. We, every single word of the Bible that we can, we can take, and it speaks to us. It speaks to us. And so when we're willing to take this approach, we discover a wonderful biblical principle that every student of the Bible 
knows and understands and believes, even if they don't know that this is what it's called, even if you don't know this word, and that is the principle of accommodation. The principle of accommodation. There we go. Is that it? There we go. The principle of accommodation. This is the principle of accommodation in a nutshell. It says, God, by being nature beyond human capacity to fully comprehend. How many of you know that's true? Right? There's even a scripture that tells us his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our ways. So that's not a surprise. He's beyond our, our capacity to comprehend. He has always communicated with humanity in ways which humans can understand and respond to. That's just by his grace and his mercy because he loves us. So he, he communicates to us in a way we can understand. Through scripture, he has accommodated or made allowance for that original audience's language and general level of understanding. So what Jews and Christians have acknowledged for thousands of years is that God throughout history has in his mercy condescended. He has condescended to impart divine truths to human minds. And thank goodness that he has to impart divine truths to human minds. He has to because he is God and I am not, right? So thank you, God, for imparting your divine truths in a way that I can understand as soon as we've decided that we understand the fullness of God, we are no longer talking about God, okay? As soon as we've decided we understand his fullness, what we are talking about is an idol we have created in the image of God. We're not talking about God. So that's important to remember. It's no surprise that God has dealt with mankind throughout the ages at a level we can comprehend. Um, John Stackhouse, he's an author of the book Partners in Christ, and uh, he's a great biblical scholar. He puts it this way. He says, we encounter the principle of accommodation as God works within human limitations, both individual and corporate limitations, in other words, like a whole society or something like that, to transform the world according to his purposes. To be blunt, God works with what he's got, and he works with what <clears throat> we've got. When faced with our shortcomings and sin, God graciously pursues shalom in the glory and the mess that we have made. So it's an interesting principle, this principle of accommodation. <clears throat> as the human race has grown, something else happens that we observe in the Bible. As it grows and expands over the millennia, God, often so does God's revelation of himself and his will. So God reveals himself in fresh new ways in the New Testament than he does in the Old Testament, right? Let me give you some examples. This is a, <clears throat> this is a principle we can all recognize. Uh, eye for an eye, who's heard of that? Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This was something instituted in the Old Testament because during at the time, human beings were animals. They were just killing each other for no reason at all, right? You just look at me wrong, and I'm going to kill you and your whole family. So God says, no, 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 we're going to create some guidelines here. Eye for an eye says you only respond in kind, right? Someone kills your ox, you can kill their ox. That's it. You can't go, you know, kill their whole home. So eye for an eye was to kind of put things into, <clears throat> into order, balance. What happens? Jesus comes along, and what does he say? Turn the other cheek. Jesus says, okay, you guys are ready for the next step, right? Eye for an eye, we can do better than that. Turn the other cheek. So now we, we, learn, we learn something. God, God uh, his, his revelation of himself and his will for us grows. In the Old Testament, you had punishment for every little thing, you know? Every little thing. If you, if you hurt somebody, they got to hurt you, or you were punished for it. In the New Testament, we find forgiveness. In the Old Testament, there's war. 
you know, there's, you, you go up against somebody and you, you need their stuff, you go to war and you take it. Uh, in the New Testament, we have the principle of peace. In the Old Testament, there's animal sacrifice. In the New Testament, divine grace. God takes it up a whole nother level. In the Old Testament, uh, we had divorce for any reason whatsoever. Even the, uh, the Pharisees stopped Jesus one time and they said, so Jesus, you know, Moses says that we can, we can basically divorce our wives for, you know, anything. She just, you know, burns the bacon. We can divorce. They wouldn't have bacon. Um, <clears throat> we burn the toast. We can divorce her. Jesus says, oh, God lets you do that because your hearts were hard. But I'll tell you a better way. You can't divorce your wife for any reason. Or he used the word uh, except for unchastity, right? Unfaithfulness. So, interesting thing. Jesus kicks it up a notch, right? In the Old Testament, we have polygamy. Even our heroes of the faith are married to multiple people. David, David had like nine wives. His son Solomon has 300 wives, 700 concubines. What in the world? And he's like called the guy of wisdom. And, (laughs) right? Multiple, multiple wives, polygamy, right? But it was a reality of the culture. It's a reality of the culture, a reality of the economic system. We even see that today. There's places in some of the third world that we go to today, and it's just the reality of their culture and the economic system. There are multiple wives. We don't go and tell them, we need to you come to Jesus. You've got to divorce all these wives. That would ruin their life, right? We make accommodation for that. God makes accommodation. So we get to the New Testament. What do we see about marriage? Spouse of one spouse. You have to have one spouse, right? If you want to be a leader in the church, you have one spouse. Um, Of course, one of the ultimate ways we see this principle of God revealing himself in a more and more incredible way is in the Old Testament, we have Jehovah. In the New Testament, Jesus comes. So, you know, in the Old Testament, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then we find out about the Trinity. We find out about the Holy Spirit and how they are one, but they are three. And it's like, what? But... That's because God says, you're ready for this. You're ready for this next step. So anyway, so we see the principle of accommodation. Now, we also see that the principle of accommodation continues even to be in effect even when we get to the New Testament. Let's look at a subject that's kind of uncomfortable for everybody. In the Old Testament, there's slavery. Slavery is everywhere. It's just a normal part of life. It's commonplace. It wasn't considered evil or wrong or nobody thought anything about it, right? You went to the market, get some eggs and bacon and not bacon, but eggs and bread and a slave, right? That was just kind of the thing. In the New Testament, we get to the New Testament and Paul describes in Galatians 3, he talks about a kingdom where there is neither slave nor free and yet he still doesn't completely forbid it. Like, we really wish he would, right? We just wish he would come right out there and say, it's evil, stop it. He doesn't completely forbid it. Why is that? Because the kingdom of God that Jesus ushers in 2,000 years ago, it's often known as the already not yet kingdom. Have you ever heard this term? The already not yet kingdom. This kingdom of God is about a gospel that changes human beings from the inside out. It's a heart reform movement. It's not necessarily, first and foremost, a social reform movement. It's not there to enforce new laws or to change people from the outside in. The kingdom changes from the inside out. And we in the church continue to live today in the tension of this kingdom. We live in this tension. This kingdom has arrived. It is saving souls one at a time, right? But it's not fully in authority in the earth. Jesus is not the president. Jesus is not CEO over all the companies. So is there injustice? Yes. There's still injustice in the world. It's a kingdom that's here, 
and we're called to be the light in the darkness of it, but is it fully in place? Is it like ruling the world? No, right? So when Jesus and the apostles describe the kingdom, you notice they don't talk about it in terms of conquering and overthrowing the empire. That's what they really wanted him to talk about. They wanted him to go take his seat on the throne, right? Overthrow Rome. But they talked about the kingdom in terms of seeds that are planted, of trees that sprout and grow and birds come and rest in the branches. They use language like yeast, yeast that, that spreads throughout the dough from the inside out. These, this is the language that Jesus and the apostles use to talk about the kingdom. So we come to Paul. Paul comes along. He doesn't just blow up the institution of slavery. But what he does do is challenge men and women who have become Christians. So imagine this. Imagine you're in first century. You're, you're in this brand new revolutionary movement of Christianity. And people come to church and you, you come to church and you hear about the freedom from bondage that Jesus brings. And you go home and you're served lunch by your house slave. That gets awkward, right? And so, but what he does do is challenge them. He challenges them to start viewing their slaves as fellow brothers and sisters. Now that gets really awkward. And slaves, he tells them, he, does, he, he tells them not to cheat their masters, even though they're, you know, caught in this unjust system. He tells them, don't cheat your master, but honor them. Show honor. And, and then he tells the church, he says, believers, don't bring this class system into the church. And so what you had in the church, like right here, you would have, you might have a slave who is a deacon or an elder in the church because the class system don't matter in here. That gets really awkward, right? It gets really harder and harder and harder for people to go home and perpetuate the institution of slavery, that's the gospel. It's a heart reform movement. It's like yeast and dough. It's like seeds that sprout and grow. That is the gospel. The trajectory of the kingdom, it's on this trajectory that can't be stopped. It is ever moving us toward this ideal of love and mutual submission and freedom. And there are a lot of great examples that we could look at, but we don't have time to today. But we're going to look at a couple maybe in our home life group this week. But as we look at the scriptures today, as we answer some questions today, that pertain to this specific subject of, of male, female, men, women, men, women relationships. Keep this principle of accommodation in mind. Um, Paul's letters reference, in his letters, he references typical first century Roman family because Paul is talking to first century Roman families, isn't he? Right? Um, he talks about slavery because that's what they knew. It was all around was all around him. He talks about patriarchy because it was all around him. In fact, it, it, throughout history, throughout all of history, men have always enjoyed more power and privilege than women. That's just a fact, right? Even if, you know, that shifts a little bit over the last couple of decades. Now, this isn't because pagans all over the world have just somehow been righteously obeying God's will by having men in charge. It's because of the curse we talked about that in week one. It's because of the curse in Genesis 3. Men have been in charge. God said, this is, this is what's going to happen. It's what's going to happen. So when Paul comes along and he says, husbands, lay down your power and love your wife like Christ, it's because husbands had the power. They already had the power. It's an assumption. It's not a directive for husbands to go and grab some power. 
If you and I today are blessed enough to live in an age when most people, for the most part, agree that slavery is evil, that hasn't been eradicated in the world by any means, but at least we are now in, an, in a very special age where the majority of the people on the planet would agree that slavery is evil and that men and women should be equal in some way, it, that doesn't mean that the church is somehow being infected by evil modern culture. It means the culture is finally catching up to 2,000 years of teaching from Jesus. The kingdom is finally breaking through to the culture, right? Jesus said it first. So the seeds of the kingdom of God are actually growing, as he said. Now the church has an opportunity to show the world how to take equality to the next level. What's that third way? Let's take it to the next level and love one another selflessly, self-sacrificially. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, God. I thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy today. Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to touch our hearts, soften our hearts. Be with us today as we talk about issues that are interesting and some of them are going to be difficult for some of us. I thank you, Father, that you just reveal yourself to us. Reveal your word to us. Help us to be more like Jesus today. I thank you, Lord God, that it will not be my words that sink into anybody's heart. It will be your words. It will be your Holy Spirit that speaks to us right wherever we are. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Good morning. So we're going to start off with um, some of our Q&As today that we received. And we don't have time to do all the ones that we received, but mm -hmm. we will get to them eventually. Mm -hmm. um, can everybody hear me? Okay. So the first question we're going to talk about today is, doesn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 14 that women should be silent in the church? Hey, I heard that over there. Some non-silence happening. Um, if you will allow me as a woman to answer this question for you today. 1 Corinthians is Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And it's a response. It's on. Turn it. Doesn't sound loud from up here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. 1 Corinthians is a, a letter from Paul to the church at Corinth. And he wrote it in response to a lot of concerns that he received from Chloe's people. And the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians is just chock full of the Apostle Paul giving um, instructions about proper church order. And for 33 verses, Paul gives direction on prophecy and tongues and interpretation, and praying, and singing, and gathering together. And note, if you go down and read 1 Corinthians 14, he, each segment of instruction he addresses to brothers and sisters. For example, in verse 26, it says, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you, has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Brothers and sisters, singing, 
teaching, prophesying, speaking in tongues for what purpose? To build the church up. But then comes verse 34 and 35. <laughs> and here's what it says. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. These verses are the prime examples of why we should always remember this phrase. Text without context is a pretext for a proof text. Boom. And here is what this means. A text, in this case a scripture, taken out of the context of what it is meaning, how it applies. Taken out of that. One can intentionally or unintentionally misuse, misapply, and misrepresent that verse to support something that it in fact does not support. Now there are many ways that preachers and scholars and teachers have interpreted this particular verse in 1 Corinthians 34 and 35. And we're going to talk about three of them today. We're going to talk about three. We're going to talk about the literal interpretation, the contextual interpretation, and then one called quotation. So let's first start with the literal interpretation. And here it is. All women in all churches keep silent always. No Christian church follows a literal interpretation of this scripture anywhere. Have you ever been in a church where none of the women were speaking? Ever? Have you ever been anywhere where no women were speaking? <laughs> I have never heard, seen, or experienced a Christian church that followed this rule literally, where once someone entered a church building, they had to remain silent. Mm. That's literal. That's taking it literally. Not only that, Paul tells all believers, all believers, to pray, prophesy, and seek the gifts. He tells all of them that. And a few chapters earlier, in 1 Corinthians 11, he instructs women how to prophesy in the church, which is with head cover. Heads covered, by the way. That's another FAQ. We're not even going to go into that one. <laughs> but he gives instruction to women about how to prophesy. So clearly, the literal interpretation does not match up with Paul's instructions or how he talks to women about other things. So it can't be that. Number two, a contextual interpretation. Paul's teaching on order, and he instructs specific groups of people to be silent in various situations three times. He does it in verses 28, 30, and then in 34. In verse 28, he is saying, if there's no interpreter for a tongue, the speaker should be silent. Then in verse 30, if someone gets a revelation, the other prophesying should be silent. 
And then in verse 34, it's likely he is addressing a particular problem at that church at that time. So here is the contextualized interpretation of, the, of this verse. He's saying, uneducated, illiterate women in the church of Corinth who are interrupting the order of service with loud questions that should wait till you get home, stop with the chit-chat and disruption. Stop interrupting the order of service. Just like everyone can't speak over each other and everyone have a prophecy, that's disorder. Mm. You can't all just have tongues and no one's interpreting and it's chaos, that's disorder. You can't just loudly interrupt and ask questions and interrupt the flow of service, that's disorder. The purpose of Paul's instructions, these three instructions, and he says the same word for silent three times, and it applies to both genders the first time and specifically to women who were interrupting the third time. He is trying to foster a respect for the giftings of the church in the church for the church. Possibility number three, and and some people think this, and I think it's interesting, and I just wanted to bring it to your attention. It's called a quotation interpretation. Now, some people think that in verse 34 and 35, that Paul is quoting from the letter he received from the people that had the concern. He's quoting from their letter, and then he's answering their quote, their question. Hmm. Um, We don't have that letter to look at, unfortunately, but we do see that Paul quotes from the letter in other places. Um, For example, it is not good for a man to touch a woman 1 Corinthians 7.1, he's quoting their letter, and he's responding. 1 Corinthians 8.1, we all possess knowledge. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.12 and 14, there is no resurrection. Christ has not been raised. People are saying, people are saying wrong things. Christ hasn't been raised, and then Paul is addressing these things. So some scholars feel 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 35 might be a quote. Hmm. He's quoting what they said, and then he's answering it. And the fact that Paul is instructing brothers and sisters at the beginning and brothers and sisters at the end, and then this is kind of just near the end, it it makes some sense. And so I also want to remind you, nothing in the law said for women to be silent. Nothing in the Mosaic law said women had to be silent. This was not Hebrew law, but there were Mishnahs. Remember, Mishnahs are what the rabbis would write, and it was considered holy, like, mm. like, almost like the Torah. Those Mishnahs, it was, it was called the oral Torah. And there were Mishnahs written by rabbis that said, a woman's voice in public is inappropriate and shameful. So it's likely these people are confused and think, oh, women shouldn't talk. Their voices are inappropriate and shameful. They need to be silent. So as a fun exercise, I want you to read this verse with me as if it's in quotes. And then as if Paul's next uh, verses are responding to it. All right, so read it as if it's in quotes. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? Note, these are masculine pronouns. He is talking to a group of men here. If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am saying to you is the Lord's command. 
But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. And then pay special attention how he closes. He goes from the masculine pronoun of those verses and goes back to a gender-inclusive pronoun in the Greek and says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Cool. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Okay, let's look at question number two. Here we go. If husbands are to be, this is a good question, if husbands are to be the head, I think that was week two, we talked about being the head, that kefale, uh, of the wife as Christ is head of the church, laying down our life, then shouldn't they also have authority over her as Christ has authority over the church? Kind of the full picture. If a husband's going to be, sort of lay his, their, his, their life down for the wife as Christ does, shouldn't we be Christ fully in every, in every way? Um, a couple of things. Uh, first, there simply is no passage, there's no verse uh, in the New Testament anywhere that says husbands are to have authority over their wives. There's no, it just doesn't say that anywhere. The only time it does have to do, it uses the authority word for, uh, the word for authority and not headship. That authority word is that, it's the Greek word exousia. The only time is in 1 Corinthians 7, 4. And it talks about mutually having authority over each other's. It's, it's an, an extreme mutuality, and it has to do with sexuality. It has to do with our bodies, that the wife has authority over the husband's body, and he has authority over her body. And it's the only time it's mentioned is in that whole passage, it's talking about not denying each other in a physical way. So that's interesting. The second thing is that I would like to just point out here is there are many things, many ways that Christ acts towards the church, that many things that Christ is to the church that husbands are not to be in their function as wives, uh, function to their wives. For instance, uh, Christ is God. We are not to be God of our wives. Uh, Christ is our Savior. We're not to be the Savior. I do not save her soul um, as much as I, you know, she might need it. I, I can't save her soul. Jesus <laughs> saves her soul. Um, I cannot be a forgiver of her sins, right? I, I, I can forgive her for what she did to me, but I can't forgive her for what she did to you. Um, only Jesus can do that. Um, I am not her advocate to the Father. Uh, I am not her healer. And if she wants something, I can't say to her, hey, just ask God that in my name. Just tell him Scott sent you. You'll get it. No, she has to ask for that in Jesus' name. So there are many ways uh, that Christ functions toward the church it doesn't mean, as husbands, we should function in all those ways towards our wife. And, in fact, in that verse, if you go back to the, that particular verse that we looked at, he's very specific. He says, as Christ was to the church, give yourself self-sacrificial love. It's self-sacrificial love and servanthood. So to take that and then extrapolate that every, uh, to, into a command to grant ourselves lordship in every aspect, like Christ has lordship over us for certainly... Uh, that would simply be making up scripture. Boom. All right, number three. Are we going too fast? Are you keeping up? No, okay. If gender roles disappear, and, and I think what that means is someone asks if um, gender-based roles, mm. not, not giftings or what you're good at, but if specifically gender-based roles disappear, what happens to the concept of chivalry, mm. which seems harmless? Chivalry is a, a man-made custom that stems from the medieval knights and their codes of conduct in the uh, 12th and 13th century. 
And in modern society, this equates to special courtesy gestures that some men direct at some women, like opening doors, um, giving up a seat, walking on the street side of the sidewalk, getting up if she leaves or comes back to the table, offering an arm on a staircase, and many more. And I think that well-meaning men who do these things are being thoughtful and considerate. However, if we look at how Scripture teaches us to treat each other, I think chivalry is kind of a low bar. God always calls us higher. So let's look at Romans 12 too. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Mm -hmm. And what is God's will? What does Scripture teach us? We're taught to love each other as Christ loves us. We're taught to be the servant of all, of all the people. We're taught to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. So all of us, all of us should be considerate and courteous. All of, all of God's children should be considerate and courteous, but that's minimum. That's minimum. We are image bearers of Christ. We are his image bearers. That's just not courteous. That's generous. That's helpful. That's kind. That is supportive. That's respectful. And most of all, it's loving. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. So don't hold open the door for a woman because she's weaker and you're stronger. Hold the door open because you esteem that individual as an image bearer of Christ. Jesus often calls us to change our motivation. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're not doing the wrong thing, but maybe our motivation is not as pure and Christ-like as we think it is. He changes us from the inside out. Yeah. He? he changes it. You should preach that. <clears throat> Although I can open a door for myself, I gratefully accept you holding the door opening for me because it is the, it's the kind and helpful thing for you to do, and I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, whoever holds the door open for me. (laughs) But it's not because I can't or I'm weak. Or maybe one day I really can't. I can't open the door. I thank you it's because you esteem and value people because they're children of God. Mm. And because it's the kind and loving and helpful thing to do, it's what I do when someone's walking behind me and I don't care if they're a man or a woman. I'm going to hold that door open Mm. because it's the kind and helpful and Christ-like thing to do. And being Christ-like is being others-centered. So we raise the bar, right? Chivalry is almost like accommodation. It's what we knew at the time, but now God calls us higher to be more loving, to be more servant-hearted, to be more respectful, to esteem everyone Mm. above ourselves. Awesome. All right, next question. Let's check it out here. Number four. Oh, this is a good one. Does 1 Timothy 2 really say that men should teach because Adam was created first and Eve was the one deceived? 
Yeah, yeah, this is a, this is a great scripture uh, that my uh, complementarian friends will often point to to insist that uh, women can't be allowed to preach in church because Eve. Let's look at it. In 1 Timothy 2.11, it starts off this way. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. This is a fascinating passage that we're going to look at verse by verse. By the way, immediately before this, if you have your Bibles, you can look at it. 1 Timothy 2.9, a couple of verses before, Paul says that women should not wear elaborate hairstyles, wear gold or pearls or any expensive clothing because it's shameful, right? So I am seeing some shameful people in this room right now. Okay. Okay. But... You know what, when we read that, we have kind of an inner sense for, okay, that was then, this is now, right? This is kind of a culture thing, right? So, let's investigate this. The first thing I want to note here is that women should learn in quietness and full submission. So, women are going to be curious, they're they're going to want to interrupt, like you were saying, while the teaching's going on, which also echoes what Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 14. What is huge here is that women are now called to become students of Scripture. This is big. See, again, the seeds of the kingdom are being planted here, and, and for, they're eventually going to blossom into something that will look quite different even from what it did in that first century. Um, in the first century Near East, we've talked about this before, learning was boys' business. That was for the boys, right? Boys went to school, especially within the Jewish community. They went to Torah school. They went to Torah study. Girls did not, and so girls did not, for the most part, learn how to read uh, at all, and so let alone get a chance to study the scriptures together, and as they grew up, uh, you know, after, after synagogue, the men would come together, and they would talk about it, and they would, they would debate it with each other in the seat of learning, um, if there was something important that a wife needed to know, she learned uh, from her husband. She learned through hearsay, secondhand knowledge from her husband, and that was enough. Because bottom line, the, the wife was expected to stay home and take care of, of the home, right? It's a noble, noble thing, but the men would be discussing the message, you know, after synagogue service. The, men, the women would be home, you know, fixing dinner or taking care of things. We already see the seeds of this when Jesus overturns things. He starts overturning things, didn't he? He planted the, the seed of radical revolution uh, of the gender roles. He praised Mary for, for hanging out with the disciples at his feet, learning, right? Acting like a man while her sister Martha's in the kitchen behaving like a woman. Even Martha herself was shocked by this. She was offended, you know, like, what do you think? who do you think you are, Mary? And, and Jesus said, no, she's doing the right thing. She's doing a good thing. Okay, so that's all fine. But then Paul says this in verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Why? Let's see. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Say, what? Right? We read this and... And, and instantly, our sort of modernism sort of gets a little rankled here. We read this, and we're like, oh, man, this is just one of those examples. Paul, you know, Paul, what does he know? You know, what is he? But, but there's something going on here. Why is Paul dipping into the story of Adam and Eve as a scriptural talking point to decree that the women should not be teachers? Is he saying that women are just naturally more deceivable? Because the truth is, there's no other scripture or, or any kind of science evidence uh, or, or any kind of reason to suggest that the female mind is more easily deceived than the male mind. We are both easily deceived in different ways. Um, and if here's the thing. If he is saying that uh, females are more naturally deceived and they're untrustworthy, 
then why on earth would we let women teach our children? Why would we let them teach, you know, the, 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 the youngest among us, the most vulnerable? Why, why would we let them teach other women? You know, that would seem really irresponsible if that's what Paul's saying. Here's Paul's point here. If you go to the, the scriptures in Genesis 1, we find that men and women are both created uh, and given co-authority over creation, right? You got Adam and Eve. They are given cre- uh, their co-authority over creation. No hierarchy. So birth order here is the reason Paul disqualifies women from teaching. If you remember the story, think back. The serpent goes to Eve and deceives her, right? You with me? He didn't pick her arbitrarily because she happened to be sitting near the tree. He picked her on purpose. There was a reason because immediately, think about it, after he created the first human being, that Ha'adam, God gives that human being the Torah, the word, the law regarding the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> he said, don't eat it. You, don't eat it, human being. And then God, uh, you know, we, we see the dividing taking place. God divides that human into two humans, Adam and Eve. And there's no record we have that God uh, then repeats his command not to eat from the tree. And so what we assume is that Adam told Eve about God's instructions. So Paul's instructions... Paul, what he's saying is because Eve was created second, she received Torah from God secondhand. She received it secondhand from Adam. Notice this makes sense because even when the serpent comes to tempt her, she misquotes what God said. If you've ever read this, she's a bit fuzzy on the details. She says we're not even supposed to touch it and God never said that. She's a bit fuzzy because she didn't hear it from God directly. Adam relayed the message. Okay, so Eve isn't more deceived. Paul's point is that she's more deceived because she's female. She's deceived because she came, was created after the command was given. She came after that. She has indirect knowledge of the word of God. So actually, this is a great learning principle for all of us today. There's something powerful here for us. What Paul is saying to Timothy, those who have not had an encounter, the opportunity to directly encounter the word of God or his, to encounter God, who have only learned it through other people, are more easily deceived, right? Women in Paul's day are mostly going to be unable to read scripture. And so to preach, what are they going to have to do? They're going to get it secondhand. They're going to, most of them are going to have to rely on someone to tell them what the scripture says. And, and then they'll teach it. They would be preaching it secondhand. And Paul is very passionate. We see in letter after letter, he's very passionate in this first century about protecting this young church uh, against false teaching, bad theology, confusion. He's very cautious about this. And so we know, furthermore, we know that Paul doesn't believe this about all women because in other places, he praises women. He, he commends women who are leaders in the church. We'll look at that in a, in a coming question here in a few minutes. But being women who were educated in the women he, that he commends were women who uh, uh, we assume must have been educated. They had standing in their community, and that was the exception of the day. Um, I always find it interesting, by the way, just to, this kind of a little side, that we're so willing to remove women from teaching from opportunities of leadership because Eve was deceived and hand the reins to men because Adam wasn't deceived. He just blatantly rebelled, right? How is that better? I'm not sure how that's better. Um, so, you know, so we say, well, we can't trust leadership because, you know, we have to let the, the men be in charge because Adam sinned, but he knew better. 
So that's somehow better than being deceived. Uh, That's not working out real well for the world, I think. Um, But it's not Paul's point. That's not Paul's point. Eve's secondhand encounter with God is what he's pointing to here and what he's warning against. This is is really another powerful... um, Principle of example of the principle of accommodation for us. There, there are many things that Paul calls shameful in this chapter, even uh, harsh language, that were clearly a cultural truth of the day. They, they were shameful without doubt, but they were they were cultural truth. They weren't a universal edict for all times. Um, and and the lesson that we can take from this also is very important for us. That is that we should be sensitive to our culture around us. We should be missionaries to our own society and not seek to just offend culture because we can. We want to be sensitive to that just as they were sensitive in their day not to offend the culture around them more than need be. As Paul says, he wants to be all things for all people. We can be all things to all people so that the gospel can spread because the gospel takes precedent. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, Doesn't Paul teach in 1 Timothy 3 that only men can be overseers. Um, Somebody finds out that you go to a church where for the past 30 years there have been women pastors and women elders, they might go, well, doesn't Paul teach in 1 1 Timothy 3 that that's not allowed? This is what you can tell them. (laughs) First, we're going to read this verse in the New King James Version. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. That's a big one. Mm -hmm. Who does that? For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Mm. So doesn't this male-only language mean women cannot be overseers in the church? Well, number one, no, it doesn't. Uh, Because in those days, groups of men and women were often referred to with the male they. You all, it was just the masculine pronoun. So even if there were men and women in a group or in a room, they could all be referred to by that, by that pronoun if it was used. Um, okay, well, what about the husband of one wife? Even if he's talking to everybody, that's pretty clear, husband of one wife. Well, funny enough, that's actually, remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. It was written in Greek. It, that is a Greek idiom. It's literally translated in English, one woman man. And the readers of that day would have understood one woman man to mean faithfulness or monogamy. Hmm. It just means you're faithful in your marriage. Number three, and this is very interesting, in the oldest Greek manuscript available, there are no masculine pronouns in this passage. The pronouns are gender-inclusive, meaning in the Greek it doesn't say man, it says person, if a person desires this. So let's look at a more accurate translation of the Greek, which we can read out of the Common English Bible. Here's what it says. This saying is reliable. 
If anyone has a goal to be a supervisor in the church, they want a good thing. So the church's supervisor must be without fault. They should be faithful to their spouse, sober, modest, and honest. They should show hostility and be skilled at teaching. They shouldn't be addicted to alcohol or be a bully. Instead, they should be gentle, peaceable, and not greedy. They should manage their own household well. They should see that their children are obedient with complete respect. Because if they don't know how to manage their own household, how can they take care of God's church? This is a good reminder that before anyone makes a proof text of a scripture, which means taking an isolated verse out of context as a quote to establish an agenda, it warns us from that. Because an example of that is, well, the Bible says if any man desires to be a bishop, therefore women can't be bishops. The Bible says that that settles it. It's wise to take several steps. And this goes for all scripture. And here's the several steps. Number one, ask the Holy Spirit of God, which Jesus promised us, his spirit within us, to lead and guide and teach what the passage that you're reading means for you right now. The Spirit of God is called our teacher. He's called our comforter. His Spirit always leads us with wisdom and into peace. So ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, I don't come at this with my own agenda. I come to it humble. And we do. We approach Scripture with humility because our God's ways are higher. They're not our ways. Number two, study the context of the verse. And some of you might say, well, you know, I, I just, I don't, need to, I don't need to do that. I can just read, I can just read the Bible and what it says it means. But the Lord said, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. You have the responsibility of engaging your mind beyond just a blanket statement because you know, People that take things in Scripture literally or at face value start cults. That's called a cult starter. <laughs> and they took Scriptures, and they think they know what it means. But the Holy Spirit is leading us to a different way. Mm. So study the context of the verse. This is your responsibility as a wise believer in Christ. We have this responsibility. Who is the writer? Who is their audience? When are they writing this? What are the circumstances around why they're writing this? There are clues that are necessary to the meaning of the passage. Number three, ask yourself, does my understanding of this verse match up with what other verses say on the same subject? And Kenneth Hagin said this. Kenneth Hagin said, look at every scripture you're looking at in light of what other scriptures say about that same subject. Because the word of God will not contradict its truth. So if you can see in a passage that Paul is um, admiring and giving women accolades for their service as deacons and apostles, then when you see a scripture that says, well, it sounds like a woman can't be an apostle, those don't match up. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at the whole. Number four. View the passage through the lens of the words and actions of Jesus. That is the measure by which we measure the truth. What did Jesus say? 
How did Jesus act? What were his conversations? What were his stories? How did he teach us? Measure every scripture in light of Jesus and the resurrection power and the new covenant that Jesus brings us. Amen. Amen. In fact, uh, Kenneth Hagin said, what was the name of his book we were reading? Do you remember the name? Kenneth Hagin says in his book on womanhood uh, that there is only one spiritual head of every woman on earth, and that is Jesus. So he would agree with that too. All right, let's look at the next one. We're going to fly through these, these last few uh, because we're, we're getting kind of close. Uh, here's one. Is it possible to be egalitarian in the church and complementarian in marriage? Is it possible to be egalitarian in the church, complementarian in marriage? The short answer, yes. Yes, you can. Uh, some people, uh, they, they're, they're fine with women preachers. That's okay. Uh, but they're going to be complementarian they're, uh, in their marriage. And you can be. I, I think if you're in a marriage and you and your spouse have mutually agreed, you can't get away from the mutuality, by the way, you have mutually agreed, hey, you're just going to, you're going to have final say on all these issues, every issue we have, you're going to have final say, and that works for you, okay, well, God bless you, that works, and by the way, I've seen uh, complementarian uh, marriages where the woman is fully in charge and the man is happy to let her be, um, so it can go both ways. Um, I, do I believe that is God's absolute best? No, I don't think that's God's absolute best. If you have uh, the willingness to investigate uh, further and this idea of mutual submission to each other, allowing each other to just shine and lead in the giftings that they have in, a, in topics that they are passionate about, I think uh, you're going to find uh, just a whole other level of joy in it. But uh, can you be? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, Number seven, we're going to fly through this one. Uh, see, what are the fundamentals uh, of egalitarian feminism? I, I would just answer that and say egalitarianism and feminism are both man-made concepts, hmm. human-made concepts. And I, in my quest for seeking the Lord, want kingdom concepts. Amen. So I would say these fall short Amen. of the way of Christ. They fall short. Everything falls short. So that is why we rely on the Holy Spirit to bring us further into his kingdom. Because there are things in feminism which is a cry for equality that want to usurp authority. Mm. Right? And if, you, if you've met Jesus, he's really quick to say, I am your authority. Sure. And you are my children. So what we want to do is... Seek his third way That's it. on all yeah. things and humbly serve and love and treat with respect our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a good one. And I think in our interaction with people, because that's where this really matters, it's your interaction with people in the workplace or something like that. Anytime you have an institution that's encountered 10,000 years of injustice, the pendulum, when it swings back, is going to swing back the other way. And uh, they, we, I think as Christians, what we can have is just grace. We can listen, you know, and if people are responding in anger and this kind of thing, we can listen and have grace for them and love for them and understanding and, like you just said, respond and show them that third way. In fact, it's a, it's a good reminder for us as, as Christians, we are in the world, we are not of the world, mm -hmm. to not pledge our allegiance to systems of the world. Amen. And that is hard to do. But again... <clears throat> 
the more freedom in Christ you have, you realize why he's giving you that freedom is because it is now your responsibility to lay that freedom at his feet. Amen. To lay it as, a, as feet. As a mutually submissive wife, do now I get to be in charge now? N- no, no. See, Christ always called me to be submissive and respectful. So now that I know I have freedom in Christ to operate in my giftings, just like my spouse, does that mean I get to commandeer anything? No. In fact, Christ tells me I get to keep laying it down to serve my husband, to serve the church. It's almost like he says, here's a gift, now give it back to me. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the beauty of serving him. That's beautiful. Amen. Amen. Uh, let's look at number eight here. Uh, are there any women specifically mentioned in the New Testament as leaders in the church? We alluded to this further because Paul does commend certain people by name. Uh, I don't have time to go through all the scriptures. Just uh, let me show you a couple of the names up here. You'll notice there's something similar to all of them. All the names tend to be Roman names. That is because in, in the Jewish Christian circles, uh, they took much longer uh, in some circles to accept women as ministers or leaders in the church, but that's okay, they got there. Um, but just some of the names, Junia, uh, she was, Paul calls her outstanding among the apostles. Um, there's uh, four sisters mentioned in Acts 21. Phoebe, Paul praises, uh, calls her a deacon uh, or a minister in the church. Uh, several different letters from Paul, multiple times is mentioned a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and one, uh, Priscilla's the woman, Aquila is the man. And uh, he mentions them, in, he changes the order of their names in different times. Four times he mentions Priscilla first. Uh, so it kind of uh, suggests that she may have been more prominent even than her husband in their work. But they uh, were both con- called eloquent teachers. Um, and they became uh, a teacher to the teacher Apollos. They told, taught him the way of God. Other women mentioned by Paul uh, who apparently had men, uh, men and women meet in their homes. They were house church pastors. Lydia in the city of Philippi and Nympha in the city of Colossa. Uh, John praises someone who goes unnamed, uh, a woman who pastors a house church. And, uh, and then there, Paul also mentions fellow workers in Philippians, some women, but we're not quite sure what they do. But anyway, that's the short answer. Um, what are other outside sources that you can recommend to learn more about the equality between men and women in the kingdom of God? Because we are called children of God, we are called one in Christ. Um, so here's a, a few good ones. One's called cbeinternational.org, and that is a website. It's Christians for uh, Biblical Equality. That's equality based on the scriptures. Uh, one is called juniaproject.com. And then a couple of books I highly recommend is uh, Beyond Sex Roles by Gilbert Belzekian and Why Not Women by Lauren Cunningham. And Lauren Cunningham is one of the founders of YWAM, Youth with a Mission. All right. And then lastly, the last question, Scott and Mel, doesn't this mutual submission and co-leadership thing just work for y'all because y'all happen to agree about everything? (laughs) That's a good one. That's kind of a synopsis of a lot of questions that we, we've been getting. Yeah, this just works for y'all because y'all just agree about everything, which is hilarious, isn't it? Um, m- mutual submission is, is hard work, right? Would you say that? Mutual submission if, if, is not the natural state If dying to yourself is hard, yeah. then it's hard work. The, the easy thing is to take charge and say, no, I'm putting my foot down. You know, that, that's easy. 
that, that's the easy thing. Um, but let me tell you, it's, it's not like we got married and now we're doing it all perfect from day one. We, we've, you know, we stumbled and started and did things the wrong way for years and, and you know, we're still learning how to, how to be Jesus in our home to each other. We'll start, we'll st- we're still learning that. And how uh, mutual submission doesn't mean uh, nobody doing anything and letting it fall through the cracks, you know, or, or nobody making a decision. You know, th- those are the things that, you know, you can say, well, it just means nobody's, you know, we, we've heard the phrase several times, somebody's got to be the boss. Somebody's got to be the boss. And uh, we have found that's not true. You, somebody can make a decision, but it doesn't mean they have to be the boss. We do have a boss. We do have a boss. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the boss. That's right. And, um, and you, you've talked about this before. There, you know, in almost every situation where a decision does need to be made, yes. usually there's one of us who feels very strongly they have heard from the Lord mm-hmm. or they feel very passionate about the subject or, right. you know, the, the, whatever it is. The or circle. someone has a real discernment against something. Mm-hmm. And that's another way to be led by the Lord. Yeah, but true. the point is, when you have a husband and wife who are following Christ, and they're both hearing from the Lord, the Holy Spirit does not say two different things to two different people. That's true. Because our God is not a God of confusion. He's never He is that. a God of yeah. peace. Now, one person may hear something, and another person hear nothing. But if two people come together and say, the Lord spoke this, and that another person said, the Lord spoke this, hmm. one or both of them is not true. Because God is a God of peace, and his Holy Spirit leads us in unity. Mm-hmm. Now, who is the author of disunity? See? It is no wonder that the devil would seek to attack the relationships between men and women, the relationships between a husband and wife, because, of course, he wants to destroy the very thing that God created and made covenant for. And so we say, as children of God, we say no. We say no. We reverence Christ. We reverence each other. And we take on the extra responsibility of walking in a freedom that asks us to seek him and die to ourselves. That's good. That's good. This, and, and it works if you, if you have uh, true love, if you have to trust each other, right? Because this, this whole mutual submission thing doesn't work if you don't trust each other. If you think the other one's trying to make a power play and trying to outsmart you, it doesn't work. So, you know, there's other things you've got to get in order for this to, for this to work. And, and it will take practice. It takes, it takes work, but the Holy Spirit helps you. And the joy outweighs all of the hardship, I will say that. Praise the Lord. Um, let, me, let me offer you this thought. And in conclusion, in Ephesians 5.21, this has kind of been just, for me, my anchor scripture in this, when things get tough and when I get hard questions and when I'm not sure about things, this is where I go. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In all of these things, let us cast aside all the power mongering, all of the who's in charge. But what about, I get, to, I get to be have this, well, you got the last one, so I'm gonna do this one, you know, you get to. All of these things can be worked out in partnership. They can be worked out in partnership. If you are practicing the biblical principle of submission to one another, because, and, and this is the foundational principle, we strive not for power, but to serve. If you are striving to serve, not to win, but to love, then we treat each other 
not as objects to use or manipulate or to be, or we don't, we don't look at ourselves as masters to be obeyed, but we look at our, each other as brothers and sisters to love self-sacrificially. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. They will know us, by, Jesus said, by our love. They will know us by our love, not our ability to properly follow you know, uh, the flowchart of authority. The same flowchart of authority, by, by the way, that every pagan society and secular institution follows. That, that doesn't make you more biblical. It makes you in line with the rest of the world. That's their flowchart of authority. We have a new person on the throne, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, and he is Lord of us all. So husbands, wives, men, and women, that's right, if you really want to be like Christ, if you really want to be like Christ, if that matters to you, Love your spouse, lay down your power, celebrate their gifts, and serve one another. Serve one another. Let Jesus be Lord and trust him enough to let him lead you both. I I can say this, as for me and my house and our house and our family, my wife and I have one Lord. We have one Lord one master, his name is Jesus. And you know what, in our relationships with other people, we want to we do better, we want to get better. In, in our relationships with all of our brothers and sisters here, uh, may the Holy Spirit teach Melissa and I uh, to get better at serving people, to, to love more self-sacrificially. May he teach us that. And may all of you keep inspiring us to act more and more like Jesus and less like ourselves because that's what we want. We want to act more like Jesus. Amen. Um, I'll share one of my prayers with you for this season of my life, and it's may I be hidden in Christ. Mm. May I be hidden in Christ. And it it comes from um, when Paul is talking about as many of you have been baptized, you are clothed in Christ. And I want you And you, I want my kids, I want the world, when they see me, to hear Jesus. To see Jesus. To see his love. I want to be so hidden in Christ. That's what others see. Amen. Let's end with the words of Jesus in Mark 10 and again in Luke 22. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So which one is greater, the one who is seated at the table or the one who serves at the table? Isn't it the one who is seated at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for calling us into community, Lord. We thank you for calling us into this faith community, this church that is so rich and diverse, Lord. And, I, and when it comes to this area of gender, I pray that you would give us a sense of celebration and delight in each other. That we would reject all the old power plays and the sexual battles, Lord God. That we would see each other as brothers and sisters, each uniquely gifted by your Holy Spirit. Help us not to be threatened by each other, but to give us a hunger to learn from the gender that we're not. Let your spirit pour into marriages today, I pray, Lord, with a fresh love and a fresh sense of mutual submission for each other. Lord, help us not to feel pride or prideful at being more scriptural than other people or more progressive than other people or more open-minded or whatever it is or more conservative or traditional. Make us humble and loving servants. Help us to be humble, even to fellow Christians who might disagree with our interpretations. Unite us in Christ, we pray, dear God. In that beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.